Today on The Wind Down, we're going to introduce our special guest, Stephen Parker. Scott, Nick and Stephen are going to talk about a bunch of current industry topics and just talk around the subject and see what comes out. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Welcome to The Wind Down, an afternoon podcast where two techie blokes sit down over a bowl of wine and chat about what's happening in the world of tech. Enjoy while Scott and Nick open up about their week in technology. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to The Wind Down. I'm Nick and this is... Scott. And that is... Stephen. Hello, Scott and Stephen. How are you both? Hello, Nick. How now, are you going? First of all, Scott, where are we? What are we drinking? We are in a lovely little wine bar called Sir Duncan up at um, Avalon. We're in, we're in Avalon. No, we're in Newport. We're in Newport. I was close. There you go. We're up north somewhere near the beach. And um, yes, it's a lovely little place. Bottles of wine, little snacks on the side. It's very nice. Now, what are we drinking? We've got a couple of bottles going today. We've got a couple of bottles. I've got um, the, the first one. This is a... Um, um, a nice little French one, a little um, Cote de Rhone, Petit Ours. Petit Or. There we go. It's little bear. You know why it means little bear? It's got a bear, it's on, got the a bear on the label. That would, that would be it. Okay. It's got a cute little bear on the label. And um, this is, I don't know, it's quite a nice little drop here, Shiraz. It's young, so 2020, but it's, it's, it's still quite good. Um, and this is another one we, we picked, which was... Um, I, well, that was probably one of the cheapest ones on the menu. I actually think it's 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 got a bit more performance than many of the others. It's um it's a Jack Estate, it's a Coonawarra Shiraz from the um, is it the Rattenbully area? Yes, it is indeed. Look at that, 2015. Very yummy. Um, so most people know us. Well, you hope our six listeners know who we are. Um, I think got six now. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. But let me introduce you to Stephen Parker. He's going to tell you something about himself. Stephen. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed. What a marvellous Friday. Uh, Are we allowed to say it's Friday? No. (laughs) Uh, It's Sunday during the week. I feel like I'm on one of those sort of chat shows where they all suddenly go, oh, no, we can't say what day it is of the week (laughs) because we don't know what day it's coming out. Anyway, the day that it is that we are here, it's really nice to be here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. Um, What can I say? Uh, Stephen Parker, I've known these guys for many, many years, been in the IT industry since the year dot. enjoy sharing stories about the IT industry and how it can create amazing opportunities, uh, not just for technology, but for the world that we personally live in. Cool. So we're going to let Scott moderate. So, uh, Scott, you can begin. I'll let Stephen do the first answer. Okay, I'll tell you what. So we, we, we've got a, just a, a number of general questions here that sort of, you know, topics happening in the industry at the moment. And I, I thought just for a start, we'd start with the economy. So where, where is it? Where, where, what's happening in the economy? What, what's going to be the impact on business? And I suppose more importantly, what, what's happening with IT in the economy? Well, I think the simple answer is if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be on a yacht in the Bahamas somewhere. So uh, reality check. Um, we live in some interesting times, which uh, I think the Chinese proverb, which at many events I've seen used as a positive thing, was originally supposed to be, may you live in interesting times. And boy, are we living in interesting times. Um, Global economy is driving everything. I mean, clearly what's happening in Europe and the Ukraine and with Russia is having a massive impact. Um, changes politically around the world and the ascendance of the Chinese economy for all the good and the challenges that that brings with it. Changing in governments in Australia and the radically different posturing we're taking around the world. And you can just see how changes in the French relationship, changes in the way that we're dealing with our Asian partners, all of those things are going to impact the economy. Where all of those things land in the short, medium term, 
as I said, if I knew I'd be on a yacht in the Bahamas. <laughs> oh, well, I'll agree with Stephen a bit. You never know. But I think some things you can probably tell are going to happen. Interest rates are going to keep going up. Um, credit's going to be harder to find. Investment, pure investment bank startups are going to find it harder to find money. The cost of living is going to increase, which is going to increase the social divide to a degree. And one of the things driving that change of government, I think we'll see a, a, an attempt to redress the imbalance that I think we've all got in our societies. And I think with that's going to come a change in the housing market in a downward direction. I think that's all got a little bit too scary. So lots of interesting things going on there. How it affects the IT industry, hmm, is even more interesting. Uh, you know, the, the IT industry is an interesting thing just specifically because what we're seeing now is with the investments in startups, um, good developers or even average developers in Silicon Valley can be doing about 400,000 US dollars a year as a package. And that sort of starts to say a few things about, you know, even if you don't really know that much about what you're doing, you're, you're still getting up to that sort of half a million dollar a year figure. And that's just, I don't know, it's, it, it's right, it's wrong, it's, it's both. It says there's too much money flowing around in that very speculative startup area that says, you know, just get it out the door. It doesn't matter if it loses money, just get it out the door. Make sure it all happens and we'll take it from there. But I think it's all going to start to slow down a bit now. So the one thing I do know from history is that out of every single recession, some of the largest businesses that we now know today have emerged because they've shown their ability to survive downturns. Disney in the 30s, the Microsoft came out of the downturns in the 70s, late 70s. Uh, Uber and Spotify and uh, Airbnb all came out of the GFC downturn. So business opportunities are created during downturns because it forces businesses to think differently. And we're seeing that in all sorts of stuff that's happened during the COVID years. And those businesses that think differently are given opportunities to come out and expand during challenging times. So whilst I don't know the magic bullet, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. What I do know, what history tells us is, there are fantastic opportunities for entrepreneurs. And IT is clearly coming to the fore as a massive and radical transformational tool. I'm, I'm actually seeing a, an, an interesting but perhaps long overdue swing of um, valuing companies for the money they make rather than the potential money they may make in the future. Well, there we can see with Warren Buffett, who sort of put his hundred, what is it, massive, it's like 10 billion, 100 billion war chest on one side and waited and waited as a classic um, value investor and in the last four, five, six months has started to reinvest in the market. Mm. When everybody else, all us retail investors who are running away going, oh, panic, 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 He's investing, value investment. Okay, interesting answers. So a bit of a, just a, a shake up in the market as a whole and we're gonna see what happens out of all of that. But I think once you actually start looking at valuing companies based upon the, the profit they make, that's really going to make a change to things. I think we're gonna see a lot of the caps of the, these you know, the massive salaries that are going around all of a sudden. Well, we can't afford to pay that, it's not realistic anymore. You know, we need to be realistic, and I'm wondering how many people are going to be affected by that. We'll see. Okay, so um, let's look. Um, next topic: um, online threats. 
So we're seeing, you've, got the, you've always had this malware, we've had these scams, you've always got the social threats. What, why are these things so successful? Why are they still around? I mean, surely this would be a fad that would be gone by now, but it seems to be there's more and more investment in it. So my, my thought is, again, back to sort of human nature. The only way society works is for us to be broadly compliant. If every time somebody walked past you, you suddenly panicked and started accusing them of theft and checking your wallets, then we'd live in an anarchic, anarchic, anarchic society. It would collapse and it would fail. Fundamentally, we have to trust for society to work. And of course, con artists throughout history have used that, that ability for us to broadly trust each other, to take advantage. What we're seeing is the modern con artist in the world of cyber threats because they're taking advantage of our broad belief that the world is a good place and that when somebody sends you an email, it's not a phishing attack, it's just an email. When they say that you've got a traffic fine and here's the photographs that prove it, you just go, well, I wasn't in Canberra, there must be a mistake because I broadly accept and believe that society is good which, of course, means I click on the link and then get malware. Well, I, so I, I think it's building on basic human nature and society having to be compliant for it to function. I had a mate who had a traffic fine. Uh, it was a little sad. He was on a motorbike and he, um, he got a, a red light. You know, you went through the red light fine. He said, oh, this is rubbish. Where's my photo? So off he went to get the photo. And there's a photo, a beautiful photo of a bike going through a red light. And his head turned around with his mouth open going, was that a red light camera? It was beautifully caught on camera. Anyway, it couldn't just be. I, I think one of the things, though, with malware is computers aren't inherently good. They inherently do exactly what you tell them to. Right? So bad actors will continually get better at trying to get money and things off people using computing, and the good people will continually try to block them. But it will always be a fight because... Computers don't know what's good and bad. They just execute instructions. Uh, that's shifting, but it's not anywhere near where it needs to be. And even when they can, there'll be people exploiting that for benefit. Like the first wire fraud was somebody mucking up with some semaphore boxes in the US. You know, there's always that kind of thing going on. Yeah, I mean, organised crime has taken advantage of opportunities in society, whether it be the more traditional, you know, 19th, 20th century organised crime, you know, Italian families, or whether it be the modern organised crime around cybercrime and the Russians. I mean, my, the funny one was I was talking to a, a cyber expert, for, I won't say which company, but a cybercrime expert, and he said, oh, if you want to know how to buy Bitcoin, go and look at the how-to and help guides from some of the cybercrime companies, because they are incredibly good companies, very clever companies, if you ignore the fact that what they're doing is fundamentally illegal, in the same way as the organised crime families were incredibly well-run families. Just so happened that they were doing illegal stuff. Yeah, and the, the documentation these guys produce on the malware they write is really good. You know, you encourage your own teams to write documentation that well. Well, you can actually, can't you? If you want to, even if you are a no-code guy like myself, you can buy a subscription service to a malware product which will be constantly evolved while you pay for the subscription to make sure it's ahead of the latest anti-malware devices to make sure this is subscription malware. It's brilliant. I've seen some of these too and I'm looking at these developers are really good. I mean, this is top-notch you know, development. Where can I find these people? So, well, you can't because they're making so much money doing the, <laughs> the malware that it's not going to come forward. Yeah. So I, I'm, 
obviously, it is a genuine threat, and I think it is actually, all, as much as we're talking about this, it's genuinely scary, and I've got older parents, like I'm sure a lot of people on the podcast have got, who innocently click on links, who say things that you just go, no, seriously, you can't do that, who are paranoid on the one hand and do things like shut down their PC so it's definitely, definitely off, but then refuse to store their passwords in a, an encrypted store and write them in a little book which they carry around in their pocket all the time. And you're going, what do you think's more likely? That you leave the little book on a table and somebody's now got access to every single one of your passwords or somebody manages to hack into an n-bit encrypted store of your random passwords. Yeah, but I don't understand that. I understand the piece of paper. So I think it is a, gen a genuine societal issue and I think we do have to take it very, very seriously. And legislation, and we probably had this conversation before, legislation is so far behind in keeping up with the threats and therefore giving us as the average consumer very little protection. The, the, the legal side is quite a way behind, but um, as, as I've heard it described, um, it's, it's not so much how much can you get away with and how long for, it's when the law does catch up with you, look out. It, it grabs hold and doesn't let go. <laughs> Cool. No, that's interesting. Scott, next topic. Okay, what are we going to do? Um, so, um, look, cyber insurance. Is this a hot topic? It's a, it seems to be a big thing in the US, or is it really a bit of a fizzer and we're not really interested in it? Um, I think it very much depends who your insurer is. There are insurers who have basically taken home insurance, uh, mildly changed a few words, and then sold it as cyber insurance, and it's useless because it has all of the subtle things like, you know, oh, your data cannot be insured unless you can guarantee 100% that it stayed within Australia. It's like, who can guarantee where their data goes? Even if you're storing your data in an Australian data center, can you guarantee that the wire it went on didn't somehow take a lowest cost routing path, routing path to through Singapore and back to Australia? Who knows? So some insurance policies are almost not worth the paper they're written on and depending on the strength of your legal skills you can either drive a bus through them and make sure you are covered or the insurance company realizes that they can get away with murder so i think policy wise this is a really really emerging space and needs to emerge and evolve much more quickly than it is I'd, I'd be really interested in seeing the stats of how many orgs have actually claimed uh, successfully claimed on cyber insurance because I think it would be surprisingly low. Um, the, the, at least the policy statements I've read are so, so many holes. It's so hard to comply with everything that they've probably got lots of get-out-of-jail-free cards. Yeah, it's becoming that way. When, when the policies first came out, they were fairly generic because the insurance companies didn't understand what it was they were dealing with. And then they get a few claims coming in. They said, oh, okay, this is what it means. We're going to tighten up this and tighten up that. And then the claims start really coming in at a fast rate. And they're going, hang on, we're taking a bath on this stuff. What, what's happening here? We really don't understand this market at all. And all of a sudden, we are sort of where we are today, where um, some things starting to happen in the US. And we, we tend to be a, a fair way behind here. I don't know why that is yet, but it's not a general thing here yet. But... Um, the policy makers in the US in the insurance policies are basically saying unless you can now show me that you're either ISO you know, security certified and have all these things in place and you can tick all these boxes, we're, we're just not going to insure you. It's not that we'll give you a higher rate anymore, we're just not going to insure you. And I think 
depending on your choices about how you want to take a posture on cyber attacks, you could take a simple posture that says, I'm going to pay the insurance because it demonstrates my willingness to take a strong posture against threats, but I understand I'll never be able to claim. It is simply a payment to demonstrate a willingness to be well postured um, and then afterwards fix what you can. But if you honestly, honestly believe cyber insurance is going to be a panacea to save all possible problems you have, then you're as naive as any other insurance you take. Because the insurance companies will try to find reasons why you know, what you've done doesn't quite comply. Are you suggesting an insurance company isn't just going to madly hand out money if you put a claim in? Look, we, we have a dog, and pet insurance is, go, is a, probably a few years ahead of cyber insurance in that, just as you said, they're evolving about where the risks come from because it is an emerging market, and the fees that you pay for pet insurance are radically different. What gets covered and doesn't get covered is radically different, and your ability to claim is radically different. And the medical costs can be amazing for pets. They can be really super high. <laughs> now that, that's interesting. I, my view on cyber insurance is you need to, with everything, as with everything, look at your business, decide the risks, decide the reward, take lots of advice, compare them, and, and get one. But if you're triggering your cyber insurance, you're already in a vast amount of trouble. That, that is true. You're, you're best to be in a position where there's no way your cyber insurance would be an issue because you're not getting attacked. Yeah, I think the other yeah, thing that's is a bit optimistic, I suppose. Well, but we haven't seen really, apart from maybe Roses only, a big Australian company get significantly breached and, and go under and class actions and all of that happen. I think that will kind of focus the mind here when that happens. Hmm. Just as a closing thought on that, you don't take out house insurance because you think your house is going to burn down. You take out house insurance hoping that that never, ever, ever happens. And it with the worst thing that ever, ever happened. And you do everything you can to avoid that. You trim all the trees around your house. You put fire extinguishers in your house. You make sure that you don't have fat bubbling away on the stove. You do everything you can to avoid triggering the insurance. It is a last, last resort. And most of us probably don't really know what our house, house insurance allows us to claim on. Well, well, this probably circles around to our next topic, which is security. And um, do you think people are really thinking about security in what they do within their business, within the IT on a day-to-day -day basis? I think it depends what you mean by think. I believe lots of companies think about security all the time, but not in the way that we in the IT industry think about it. They constantly think about the security maybe of their staff. They think about the security of their business relationships and losing a contract or the business outcomes of poor security. What they tend not to think about is how that occurs under the covers from an IT perspective because it's just too complicated. I've, I've got to agree, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's most, most business leaders really don't understand IT security at all. I'd say most IT people don't really understand IT security either. It's a, it's a niche topic. So, so yeah, it's a risk, but lots of people don't get it. I, I do see with a lot of clients, when we explain what proper security looks like in accordance with a framework or a standard, we say how much effort is going to be involved to, um, to implement it. Not just, not just maybe time from us, but time from the business to change processes, to train staff, to 
make them aware of things, to really look at how things are done and re reshape those processes in a more secure fashion, all of a sudden the concept of being ultra secure just sort of loses its, its focus a little bit. And maybe we can just be a slightly better secure than we are now as a starting point. And I think that's part of the challenge is that when you go to talk to a cyber expert or a security expert, their default mode is to frighten the living bejesus out of you and insist that you become 100% compliant with everything, which of course costs an absolute fortune, mitigates against every single risk possible without any business context around that risk. It's a bit like going to see a lawyer and they say, no, technically you're in breach of the law. And you say, well, what's the consequence? A $50 fine. Okay, we'll take a $50 fine. It's a $5 million fine. What can we do to remove that risk? And the same thing that a lot of cyber security experts take a business person who sees nothing and tries to apply 100%, and actually the right answer might be, look, for this part of our business, we need to get as close to 100 as we can. For this, it's our marketing documents. Please, somebody steal it. Yeah. <laughs> get you more eyeballs. It's, 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 so it is worth, as with everything of this, yeah, looking at what it means to your business and how it's going to affect it. But yeah, I agree. Security is important. Most people don't understand it. Hmm. Okay, here's an interesting one. Bitcoin. Hey, what's all the fuss about? Ponzi scheme. That's what Warren Buffett said. Um, the tech behind cryptocurrency is academically interesting. I, I think it's not very useful. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to be... It, we'll, we'll end this with it not being used for very much. I think it's as... As I said in a um, discussion, I, a presentation I gave about cryptocurrency four years ago, it's highly speculative. Um, your investments can go down as well as down. Um, and it's really people wanting to make money that's driving the attractiveness of it. Will it replace normal currencies? No, of course it won't. Governments will want to hold on to their currencies as long as they can. Banks will want to make money out of transactions. And the more the crypto market is unstable and goes down, the less interest it's going to hold for, the, except the, the people who are like, it's, it's the Klondike, right? It's the Wild West, it's gold digging, it's totally speculative, and most people will lose their shirt. So I, just, I think if we separate the current fad around cryptocurrencies and just replace it with sort of digital currencies, I don't think there's any question at all we will have digital currencies in the future. Digital currencies will be managed to a large extent by central banks. We will have a digital Australian dollar. We will have a digital uh, UK sterling. These will be one-to-one -one matched. You won't care. Will the underlying technology be blockchain? Maybe. Doesn't matter. It'll be some secure technology. Right now, however, we are in the Wild West, and there's no question at all. I mean, we probably all know people who we've either seen on TV or personally who bought Bitcoin when it was like a dollar. And they're going, oh yeah, on TV the other night there was the crypto king who lives somewhere down in Bondi and he's just a caricature of Bitcoin millionaires. He made his money. We all want to do the same thing. But we are in the Wild West at the moment. And if you kind of, if I just take it in something we're all familiar with, we now think of Google today. It's the search engine. When I started in the IT industry, there were things like AltaVista. This was amazing. Gone. Disappeared. Was it because search engines were fundamentally a bad idea? No. They were just the early part of the evolution of a particular area of technology. And I think the Bitcoins, the Ethereums, and, and, and certainly when you get into the thousands and thousands of fringe coins, those will go 
one or two may survive as an alternate currency, but digital currency will survive, the vast majority of current cryptocurrencies will disappear. Well, that's not good, because I was thinking of creating Scott coin. Oh, you oh. could. You could. Everyone else could lose their shirt on it. So, <laughs> so look, the whole Bitcoin and other coin currencies, I'll call them, I heard it explained interestingly the other day. It's something that hundreds of million people have taken investment stakes in, but probably about a thousand people around the world really understand the university level mathematics behind it. I, yeah, may, that's probably an accurate number. Um, there's an um, online course at Princeton where you can actually learn how to build a blockchain from scratch, which is a fascinating course, which I've done. Um, and it, it's brilliant. They don't have a high subscriber base and they certainly don't have a high pass rate. Because the tech's complex, it's hard to do, it's very boring. So I, I reflect a little bit on a personal level. I've chosen not to invest in anything to do with cryptocurrencies because I consider it to be too uncontrolled and too high risk. However, I invest in the Australian stock market in the mining industries. And I have, let's say, 20 mining stocks, 18 of which are currently underwater, some of them as much as 70 or 80%. Now, when the news talks about Bitcoin having dropped and it sort of like does its, just loses its mind when it's gone down 30%, I've got some of those stocks I invested in that have gone down 70%. That said, highly regulated, they have to report, so isn't that good? But I also have some stocks that have gone up 5,000%. And those two stocks that have gone up 5,000% have covered, more than covered, the others. Is that any more risky than if I'd gone into Bitcoin? In hindsight, 100% not. Two, two things in that. One is note to self, don't get mining stock advice from Stephen. Um. <laughs> yes, do, because the losses have more than been amplified and got away with by the open heart. Okay, well, we'll see how that one goes. Yeah, but I, I think Steve got, it, Steve got it right, right? Stock exchange is regulated. The odds of all of your miners losing all of your money are fairly small. Uh, While well, if you invest in cryptocurrency, you can lose everything you spent, and certainly people who invested in Terra Luna will be doing that right about now. Um, the, the, the scary things you start getting is you get the finance companies offering you margin loans on crypto, and that's how to lose more than you can afford to invest. So What I've, what I've generally seen uh, is the institutional investors that are playing in this area uh, are a lot closer to the operation of the coin base, or of the, of, I shouldn't say of the coin um, that, that it's based on. Um, it's different to Coinbase. Um, and that they can see where things are heading. And in any sort of um, scheme, and it's, yeah, it is a Ponzi scheme, it's a pyramid scheme, eventually when it gets to the point of having all of the um, institutional investors part way up and they can see what's happening, they start getting out. They get their money. And it's the retail investors, all the mums and dads investors that are tossing a few dollars in to see what happens. They're the ones ultimately funding the profits through their losses. So I think one of the interesting things that if, and this, this is where I was very tempted to get into investing in the coin space, was there are a number of companies who facilitate the infrastructure for the Bitcoin mining. So there can be there are some cloud companies out there. There's a company called DC2, for example, who's investing in you know, data centers, which are used by the miners. There are people who facilitate the underlying technologies and the tools. And that's a bit like investing in the people who sell the picks and shovels in the mining, in the gold mining boom. It doesn't now matter if that coin goes under or that going or going. As long as another coin pops up, 
if you're in, if you're basically financing and investing in the infrastructure, that might be an interesting. So I hasten to add, not financial advice here. I have avoided the coin space, but the only temptation I've had has been to invest in the infrastructure providers rather than the coins themselves. It, it, it is true that there's a very big market there, and even a, a good mate of mine ma makes pods that is being taken up by the data centre provider. You drop these pods in, join them all together, attach solar farm uh, arrays to them to, far to drive them, and there you go, you stick these things out in the desert, they run themselves, and... I, I, I would say at this stage that, as we always say in this, all advice given is general in nature and does not take into account your personal circumstances. So see a qualified financial advisor if you're thinking of investing, not us Muppets. Anyway, <laughs> next question, Scott. Okay, here's a, a slightly broader topic. You take your average business, or even maybe not your average business, but just pick, pick a company out there of not not your local corner shop, but maybe someone that's you know driving is of a decent size. If you go talk to their board or their management um, executive management team, how much do you think they really understand about IT and what it can do for a business these days? As different to oh yeah, that's the computer we add up all our sales on. An emerging space. I mean, there are clearly, I think with all of us, we've got grandparents who are super tech savvy, who when you say, oh, install WhatsApp on your iPad, and they just go, yeah, I don't, what do you mean? I've already got it there. That's how I communicate with my friends. And then you've got other friends, other grandparents, who sort of say, sorry, um, I only just know how to turn it on. So there is a world of difference between technical competence at all ages. And boards of companies have a similar diversity. And whilst we have an expectation that they, oh, not just an expectation, there's a legal requirement for them to understand uh, law and accounting, even if they're not lawyers and accountants, they can't ignore their duties. We don't have a similar expectation about their IT skills. And I think that's where the challenges come from. Some boards, brilliantly skilled, brilliant on top of where the world's coming from. They know the right questions to ask, even if they don't understand the nuances, but they absolutely are driving their businesses phenomenally. And other boards wouldn't know one end of a pen to one that can write on a screen. I'd actually go a bit stronger than that. I'm actually a bit disappointed. When I started in the industry, you know, CEOs and executives were my parents and grandparents' generations. They hadn't grown up with technology. They weren't going to understand it. That's, that's fine. But the world's run, really, and well, our age, really by our generation at the moment, and about to be taken, overtaken by millennials, but there you go. And, and we grew up with home computing, the computing revolution, etc., etc. And still, there's a massive gap in technology skills across people I deal with in companies. And I, I think it's, it's actually, I think we're missing a trick. And it always comes home to me when I go to the States and I go and look at businesses in the States and it's not blowing smoke up the US's thingy at all. But it seems to me that in the US, business leaders and company executives are far more technology savvy than our business leaders in Australia. You'd never hear a business leader in the US go, well, I'm not very good with computers, right? They know how to drive their reports, they know how to drive their, their spreadsheets, they know how to drive everything that makes their business work and know where there's opportunities for automation. And we've still got 
we still got CEOs that print out every email, for goodness sakes. My CEO of my first company I worked for was doing that. It's, it's, it's strange. So do you think, I mean, look, I, I fully agree with what you, what you said. Do, do you think it's because in the US you've got the Silicon Valleys and you've got the, you know, the, the mass group as an industry, the technology farms there of people, of systems and whatever? Like if, I, if I go to Hawaii and you ask people about coffee or about pineapple, they know that really well because they grow it there. They, they, they've done it for so many years. But you ask them about pumpkins and it'll be, uh, well, yeah, you know, it's that thing you eat with the mashed vegetables and the whatever. That, but, but, you know, they won't know as much. I, I think there's a culture of technology acceptance and technology skill in the senior business community. I think you, you can't go to the golf course being a technology Luddite because you kind of get laughed out of town. And I think it's, it's, it's cultural. Like, we've dramatically reduced smoking in Australia by making it culturally unacceptable. I think being technologically illiterate is culturally acceptable in Australia. And I don't think it's culturally acceptable in other countries. And I think that's the difference. If this, this is, by the way, the link I see with the cyber insurance. We don't, a lot of people just don't have a concept of what it's for or why they need it. Whereas you go to like larger companies or even mid-sized companies in the US, and sort of they can tell you about their insurance policy, what it's there for, why they're protecting against what they've done to. It's, it's very interesting. And I think we we in the IT industry also have to take some ownership about this because we're very good about talking about features, and actually business people care about outcomes. And if a finance expert walked into the boardroom and they started talking about the nuances of one cell in an Excel spreadsheet, the board would say, "I'm sorry." Please explain to me the impact on the company for the decisions that you're talking about. We go in and start talking metaphorically about the, the Excel spreadsheet. We need to also, as much as the senior executives need to learn more about the IT language so they can understand how it can help the business, we as IT specialists need to be more comfortable about explaining the business outcomes from what we're doing because the opportunities are clearly huge. And I think this is going back to a comment I made before. Radical change occurs during really difficult downtimes because the it's too difficult, I'm too afraid, I don't know response, the do nothing, is now an unacceptable. It's unacceptable to say, oh, well, I don't really know how to run a website. We're just a restaurant. It's like, then you're going to go out of business. You need to go online. You have to do this, otherwise you don't exist. And that's why downturns force change. So, so like I hear you about the IT response to it, but I don't see a difference between IT practitioners here in the main and IT practitioners in the States, except ours are probably a little bit more IT challenged. But um, I, you're right, but you're right only because you have to make more effort here than you do that. You know, when I was going to the US in the late 90s, every office I went into had proximity swipe cards. You could use that to buy your lunch. That was all, every organization you went to, you, you, we're just starting that here. Let's just be really clear as well that this isn't a panacea in the US. So, no, no, no. Let's take banking. In Australia, in the UK, you can turn around and say, I can go, I want to send money to my mum in the UK. Click, click, done. In America, if you live in some sort of whoop, whoop, nowhere town and your local bank is whoop, whoop, nowhere bank, 
that doesn't have an international connection because they don't have a single clearing bank. They have multiple clearing banks. So your Whoop Nup Nowhere Bank is connected to the slightly bigger Whoop Whoop Nowhere County Bank, which is, and eventually it may get to Bank of New York. You want to send money to your auntie in Whoop Whoop Nowhere, USA? Boy, can that be challenging. And you still have things like, and this is a couple of years ago, I admit, a friend of mine was asked if he wanted to come into the bank and sign the mandate so the bank could pay on his behalf. He was a Brit. He assumed this was some sort of direct debit mandate. No, what he was signing was that the bank was given the right to write and sign a cheque on his behalf to automate the process for him. So we have to be very careful when we have this panaceic view about how some countries are amazing. In many ways, Australia is incredibly advanced with IT. Could we go further? Unbelievably, yes. Do our politicians help that? No, because they keep changing their minds every five minutes. Banking. We, we had auto tellers in the US. They had drive-through banking. You just drove up to the window like you would at a McDonald's window, drive-through window, and you say, here's my card. I want... Uh, in, in the... Um, um, when I was in the US, I was with a little tiny bank called First Technology Credit Union, of course. Found my card the other day. It's like a circuit board. Anyway, moving on. Um, they del- if somebody wrote you a check, that seems to happen all the time in the, in the US, you go up to the ATM, it would take a photo of the check, and the money would appear in your account instantly. Now, that's really cool. That, that, works, that works today. It's an, it's an overnight clearance for, for me, but it works today. Yes. Which is good, because otherwise I'd have a hard time flying to the US every time I want to deposit a check. Yes. So, conclusion to your answer, there is no question at all that Australian senior business leaders need to be more technically, technologically savvy. We're missing opportunities. And I don't just mean senior business leaders, business alone. The governments, since my time, I've been in Australia 12 years, Around the world, you have emerging economies like Singapore who have 20, 30, 40, 50-year plans for digitizing their economies, for driving technology through their economies to make them 21st century business economies. In Australia, we've had what appears, seems like a new government every two years of a different flavor who've sacked their own leaders who can't decide what driving digital technology into the modern Australian economy means. And that is a massive challenge because, of course, business leaders respond to the political climate in which they operate. Surely Kangacoin will help us. What's your next question, Scott? Okay, moving right along. Okay, so um, one to finish up on. Um, AI, artificial intelligence. Um, what, what's happening with that in the world today? So just think about a few years ago, well, not quite a few years ago, we, we had Clippy the little Microsoft Office clippy thing up here on the screen. Say, so look, it looks like you're trying to type a document. Can I help you with that? So, so clippy, just some, some background. And, and I think we should, I think we're better off using the term machine learning than AI, just, just because I think machine learning's more what we're doing at the moment. We're not really doing AI, but we can go out and discuss that until we've had way too many bottles of wine. Um, clippy came out of something called Microsoft Bob. Um, and then got introduced into Office and was a, a fantastic idea that's now Siri and, hey, Google. I'll stop my phone responding to that. There it goes. So machine learning's everywhere. It's really prevalent in advertising. You know, we can sit here and have a conversation about Maseratis and Maserati ads that'll appear on your phone. Um, it's really common in targeting things at you. Um, we've seen you know, a lot of the big box rese- resellers use it to target stuff to you. 
There's a ton of content now being created by AI. We have digital assistants that understand us speaking. Um, we have um, phone systems and companies where you can phone in and half your time's with an AI. We're typing things to bots more often than we realize. Machine learning's everywhere and being used in all sorts of bits of business. So it is highly used. It's not something that's not. And I'll build on that because I, I agree that we, when, whether we're going to call it machine learning or AI, and I think AI is the one that will stick because it's, what, it's a bit like when people say cloud. And when you and I start in the cloud, people are having academic arguments about is it SaaS or PaaS or IaaS. It's just cloud. Why? Well, because people kind of get that there's this generic stuff over there. AI, artificial intelligence, it's something that's not human and it's machines do it. So AI, I think, will be the dominant language, even though technically maybe you're right with machine learning. We can sit here and say, oh, most modern AI is really just clever reporting. But I think if you actually look at what we're achieving in the world of AI over even a few years ago, and you listed a whole load of them, unbelievable, and also quite scary, but unbelievable, the fact that you can walk into your house, you can remotely do stuff, you can learn from things that happen, so lights will maybe turn on in a way that yeah, you're not just running through the room, you're slowly walking through it. Just incredibly clever, incredibly clever stuff. And the stuff that's happening in fulfillment data, in fulfillment warehouses, the conversations we were having earlier on about auto-replenishment of stock levels. Stunning, brilliantly, incredible. Is it anywhere near what we see in our sci-fi movies? No. And a lot of, I think that's the confusion between the general public of they see AI as sci-fi, and what they don't understand then the prevalence to which basic operational automation is happening through AI. And that's incredible, it's unbelievable. Uh, I think sci-fi is a really interesting thing. I, I went back and watched series one of Star Trek recently, and, and I watched it, yeah, I watched it with a, a lens on when I watched it as a kid, there were always like technologies that I really wanted. Like They walk around with handheld tablets that they do things on. The doors open automatically. They have handheld communicators. You know, I had a maths teacher who said to me, Beaujard, he said, that's an awful exam result. You're not going to spend your whole life with a calculator in your pocket. No, mate, I'm going to spend my whole life with a computer in my pocket that's hundreds of times better than the one that sent us to the moon. Yeah, there's all of that's happened. There's some really smart stuff going on. Interesting. Well, we'll see where all that heads, but you're right about the, like, the TV and the sci-fi shows. A lot of that has been one person's dream of, oh, look, here's something really futuristic. But then people then look at that and someone says, hmm, I know how to do that. It inspires well, people I to, to do that it. bit. I know how to do that bit. And then eventually, all of a sudden, the tech exists. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, all, it's all pretty amazing. But AI is actually driving far more than you, you think, and it's only going to grow. So interactions with businesses and government more and more be driven by the device and smart technology and less and less by low-paid humans doing a, a bad job. Here we go. So I was just quickly looking up an article I remember reading from World Economic Forum, which was just a few weeks ago. And it talks about 97 million new roles will be created by 2025 as humans, machines and algorithms increasingly work together. Now a bit further down it then said something like 85 million jobs will be lost. But we're a net 
9 million jobs better off. Well, no, what it didn't say, though, is that those 85 million jobs will be done by a computer. It, the article, the broad article is talking about how there will be massive new job opportunities as we engage with the robotics and automation and computers, but at the same time it's saying there will be an awful lot of jobs that disappear. Net, 94 created, 85 lost. We're net 9 million jobs better off. But it will be new training, new skills. And I think this is the bit that we have to get our heads around, that over human history there was a time when a human being pulled a plough through a field and then a horse did it and then a tractor did it and you can take this as like there was an absolute uproar in 19, in 18 I have to remember the date but 80, late 1800s when the New York City decided they were going to use horses to take the fire trucks around the city and the local unions representing the human beings men who pulled the fire trucks were up in arms about them being put out of a job this is not new. Technology, whether it be a horse or a computer, and let's face it, a wheel was technology in its time. Technology constantly replaces certain jobs and creates, creates new ones. opportunities in new areas. That's very interesting, actually. Um, you reminded me just then that there is actually uh, an insurance company, a very specialised one in the city, that has uh, Australia's first hand-pulled fire it's, a, it's like a, uh, a, a big container of water and a couple of sticks and a wheel and whatever. It's, it's sitting in there for you. It's very interesting. There we go. That was super fascinating. How about that? Yeah, lots of good topics there. So and we might even break them up into little wind downs. You never know what the marketing team will do. Yeah, Your little sound bites there. Absolutely. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, Nick, thank you. Stephen, thank Stephen, you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. And let's just be really clear. Technology is creating amazing opportunities. Sometimes, of course, we get a little bit scared, but let's remember the opportunities for positive futures that it does create. And we all live in a million times better world than our great, great, great grandparents lived. So technology, awesome. Let's just remember there are some challenges along the journey. And have I got a technology opportunity for you? If you do like what you've heard today, please give us a like, leave a subscribe, and if you'd like us to discuss something, leave a comment. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.